And we're live. Hey everyone, welcome to Under the hey. Surface. Oh, good job. Stream yard this broadcast. <laughs> yeah. Um I guess I guess we'll have a dog joining our uh, discussion soon. Sorry, but, my wife uh, just got home. The dogs are going nuts. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um but uh I'm uh this is under the service main uh, region. Stop cam button. You're watching Martin, camera settings uh, button. Present button to leave studio link. Hold on. Present Hold button. On. I can camera stop cam button to mute microphone button to activate press enter. Yeah. Um sorry, uh you're so we're gonna be talking about resilience today. I'm Mark, a uh, brown man in uh, brown eyes and coincidentally brown shirt <laughs> background, and I've got glasses and a black black and white beard. Crystal? And I'm Crystal. I have on a red shirt and black glasses. I have brown hair, brown eyes, and a brown background with the shelf, a clock, and a lip. They Zoom. were joined Zoom. by uh, Daniel Hodges. Streamyard broadcast dash Google Pro. Streamyard stop and button. Sheldon Lewis. Microphone button to activate more options button menu. Mute microphone button to activate press enter. Stop cam button to mic and camera settings button to activate press enter. Enter account settings. Streamyard dash broadcast dash Google Chrome dialog close modal button. List of three items. Camera tab. There we go. Sorry. Okay. Sorry, Sheldon. I had to mute you because uh, it's we're, we're going to have a hard time getting with everyone. Just um, unmute yourself whenever you get it working. Okay. Hi, Court. Hello. Hey. I'm, Court, I'm Court Schneider. Yeah. And uh, I'm wearing a um, camera settings black button. shirt. Button. I've got a white background. Press enter. Leave studio link. Um, glad you could join us. So, um, I guess we can get it. We can finish with everyone's visual description tip when they, whenever they choose to start talking. But we should probably cover the the. Um, what this topic is about. So we're talking about resilience today and we wanted to um, address of, address it in terms of how you can use, uh, use that in addressing your own journey through disability. And uh, we thought we'd bring up some points and go back and forth, discuss them. We're not trying to give anyone any advice or anything, but maybe, maybe you happen to hear something that speaks to your own experience or can help you navigate your own journey. That sound about right, Crystal? Yes. If anybody has ever watched us and know we're not medical experts, we don't. <laughs> In no way ever have we ever tried to be experts. <laughs> Um, we have some 
uh, really good guests that are very, very knowledgeable about things and we can obviously dialogue and know stuff about that, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> So um, maybe let's start with the definition. Mm -hmm. So uh, resilience is by according to the dictionary, which is <laughs> probably pretty accurate. It's the capacity to withstand or recover quickly from difficulties and exhibiting toughness. Um, now, does anyone want to speak to that or talk about how they define resilience? I guess I'll go ahead and start. My name hey. is Daniel Hodges and I'm a man, white man in his late thirties wearing a, a dark suit with a blue tie. And what I'm, what I'm going to say at least is, is an awesome black fedora. And <laughs> I'm, you know, I, I identify as somebody who is blind as well as experiencing uh, chronic pain, chronic fatigue, and also some mental health challenges. Mm -hmm. And I think especially on that last point, you know, Mark, what I really liked about that definition of resilience is to recover quickly from adversity. Sometimes we feel like we have to immediately jump from problem to solution and we skip over that step of acknowledging the difficulty of whatever circumstances we're facing i know i've struggled with that a lot over my life and it's just been very recently where i've said look if you're going to really develop your resilience muscle beyond where it currently is you have to give yourself permission to acknowledge where you're at but also look forward so that you're not staying there, that you can't just immediately bypass whatever you happen to be feeling at that moment. Oh, you know what? I actually didn't realize there were some people that was, uh, or Jennifer, sorry. Sorry for keeping <laughs> winning, Jennifer. But that was that was a great point, uh, Daniel. Um, Anyone else want to speak uh, to that? Oh, oh. <laughs> uh, you were right. We don't have the owners the first thing on there because oh. I'm covered up yeah. again. <laughs> yeah. Okay, let, let me, uh, sorry, sorry about that. Let me fix that. There we go. Sorry about that. I do. I do like the idea of uh, sort of acknowledging the adversity and also understanding that adversity happens for everybody, um, but particularly people with disabilities. But I'll, I'll, another. So when I think about resilience in the context of disability, what I think about, and part of this is. I'm a director of disability services at the University of Richmond. I have the black University of Richmond spider sort of polo shirt working today. Um, and when I think about this, one of the things that we often don't think about is collaborating with others to help us deal with adversity. You know, from a disability perspective, what are the things that I'm going to need to do to... Um, 
to deal with this situation and who else am I going to need to involve? So I'm going to tell a short story, which is about <laughs> minor adversity that I had on Saturday. <laughs> um, but but it, it shows. So I took an Uber to an event that I was doing. I was running a 5K race for a charity and I lost my iPhone in the Uber, right? So now, like, I don't have a way to call an Uber back. The Uber drove away. So I'm thinking, okay, how do I solve this problem? So the first thing I think of is somebody that I knew at the race was kind enough to give me a ride home. Then I went to my neighbor and I said, hey, can I use your phone? Because I need to call and see if they've got my phone. So I called. They had my phone. Um, the neighbor was nice enough to drive me to where the Uber driver was, and I picked up my phone. But like that's a, that's a small thing. But like in order to solve that problem, there were two people that I had to work with outside of myself to help me solve the problem. And I think one of the things, the mythologies around being disabled is we should be able to handle this ourselves. But actually, in order to handle or be resilient, we need to have relationships with people and know how to effectively use those relationships to help each other because we often forget that piece. Yes. Absolutely. It is a big deal. Learning to be able to accept help from other people and to know when you have to ask for it because like I have Tourette syndrome and my Tourette syndrome didn't start getting really severe until later in my life. Like I didn't even get diagnosed until I was 30. And by that time I was in a wheelchair. I could barely walk. A lot of times I couldn't talk or see because I was shaking so violently all the time. So I had to go from being able to do everything I, I wanted to do whenever I wanted to do it to suddenly I have to ask for help just to like get to the bathroom or to get a door open so I could get my wheelchair into a store. And it was really hard going from being the guy that helps everybody to being the guy that has to constantly ask for help. But, you know, it's something that I had to deal with. And like Dan mentioned earlier, I also had to learn that like it was okay to mourn the things that I lost and I couldn't do anymore. It was okay to admit that that, that stinks. I don't like that part but not to wallow in it, not to stay there forever and just cry about all the things that I couldn't do. And instead I chose to focus on all the things that I could still do. And like at one point for a long time, a lot of days I might not be able to speak because my jaw was clamped shut and my eyes would be ticking and maybe I could see out of one eye and maybe I could get one thumb working and I can't really communicate with my kids. I can't communicate with my ex-wife but I could communicate on this. And if I could work that thumb, I could work the keyboard. So I started hanging out online and became like an online Tourette's advocate for people like, you know, new parents whose kids just got diagnosed and help walk them through the process and coping with it. And I got to be like a real service and a real blessing to people in my community through this device, through this cell phone, because I could work it with one thumb and I might have been trapped in a body that didn't work right today, but it didn't stop me from being able to be a blessing. And focusing on that made my life so much happier and so much easier to deal with than just focusing on all the, the bad parts. Uh, Jennifer? Hi, everybody. I'm Jennifer Soames. And um, great, great things that you guys have already brought up. And what comes to mind is like a pseudonym for resilience is adaptability. 
because it seems like that's exactly what you were describing fish is you had to adapt to what you were able to do in the moment with the resources that you had available, AKA mm -hmm. your cell phone. So, so much of it is adaptability and it's day to day, it's moment to moment um, and circumstance to circumstance. And I think that that's another way to look at resilience and um, social support and was- Stream yard dash broadcast. Brought up um, and community. And I think at least I know for myself living with a traumatic brain injury and chronic fatigue syndrome and a whole host of other related things, that community has shrunk, but has also evolved. To activate, press Nick and camera settings button. And Sheldon, I think that might be you. If you yeah. Thank yeah. you so much. He's trying um, to get his microphone figured out. Yeah. Um, so yes, there's absolutely grief that has to happen. Um, but I want to just draw attention. There's um, in case it interests anyone here or watching. There's a book called Resilience. That is actually, um, it's it's research on resilience. And these two authors, they're qualitative researchers. So they look at um, not just statistics, but like experience. And they have, uh, I think that's 10, they're called resilience factors. So these will definitely weave in and out of our discussion today, but I thought I'd just share them because um, they'll get brought up anyway. The things that people are actually researching. So they include realistic optimism, facing fear, moral compass, religion and spirituality, social support, resilient role models, physical fitness, brain fitness, cognitive and emotional flexibility, and meaning and purpose. So they look at all these things in relation to what makes people resilient. And these 10 factors, they say in their research, uh, all have contributed to people's uh, resilience and being able to withstand all kinds of difficult situations and circumstances. So um, just some things out there, but letting you know that there are actually people who are researching this as well. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah. 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 Thank you for adding that, Jennifer. There were, there are lots of points that we, uh, we want to go over and everybody so far has touched on them a little bit. So well, not Adam. Adam, he just oh, joined yeah, us. Adam. Oh, welcome, <laughs> Hi, Adam. Adam. Hi, everyone. I'm sorry I was a little late. I had problems figuring out how to get on this. Um, <laughs> but here we are. Um, I guess the question is, what is resilience to me? Is yeah. that why we're mm -hmm. talking about this? I think, I'm not sure. Recently, I've been thinking a lot about why. What is your why? Why does it matter to get out of bed in the morning? Why does it matter to try harder than maybe other people are willing to? Mm -hmm. well, I think that helps with my resilience. That's what keeps me going forward. I said to somebody yesterday, I said, if this deal um, doesn't work out for my company, you know, I might, I might move on to other things, other ways to help people protect themselves from violence. Mm -hmm. Because I've literally, I mean, okay, not literally, <laughs> 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 literally, 
um, cut my heart out several times to make this business work and feel, feel the emotional pain. But I keep going because it matters to me. It's my why. Right. And that's why I work so hard to improve my memory and why I, you know, work so hard to, as Jennifer just said, um, try to work on my mental and, and physical health. Just, it's not really, I don't do it for me, although I know I should. I do it because it helps me be a better leader. Um, so without a why, I don't think I'd give two shits. I don't think I would do much, honestly. Um, so that makes that, that why behind me is, is what helps me be resilient. So, there you go. That part of knowing that purpose you have. Yeah. Purpose. Let's that it all, it all flips together. You know, you have to be resilient to find that purpose to do other things. <laughs> so, and that's sure. a good segue actually to our first topic uh so um how do, how do we get this to a sort of blocking oh uh, no Adam. Uh, well yeah. can can you let's see can oh that's how the you, layout we had fixed where's it, the layout where's it at just a minute sorry Sorry, there's no end to technical difficulties. I just keep bear with us. No, that's not. Oh, but that's not it. Well, uh, uh, so wait, that one's better yeah, because yeah, better. that blank. Yeah, so right. That's fine. Yeah. That's fine. Okay. <laughs> um, so the first point we wanted to talk about, and for anybody who's tuning in uh we put the link in the show notes there was an article by positive psychology that we sort of drew from so we want to give credit there but we thought these were valuable points that we could discuss and unpack the first uh, point being that part of being resi uh, resilient is viewing setbacks as impermanent and i know uh, some of you touched on it but do you want to maybe elaborate on this point anyone yeah, yeah i mean i think i think it gets back to the to the to the physical thing and and how you view your limits it makes me think of so as i've talked to you guys before you know i i run races on crutches and so i'm a little bit obsessed with distance running and distance running culture but it makes me this conversation makes me think of one of my favorite movies about the legendary runner steve prefontaine there's a movie called without limits and in that movie like the coach finally tells steve prefontaine be thankful for the limits that you have in this life because they're about as limitless as it gets right? I'm paraphrasing there, but he's basically telling him, be thankful for the limits you have because they're as limitless as they get. So I try to remember that despite the limits due to my cerebral palsy and the frustration that sometimes comes with using crutches in a world not built for me or not gate transportation, that there's a lot that I still can do. 
So I think for me, it's not so much as seeing the setbacks as impermanent, but like seeing my situation as, okay, I can still do something and understanding that I do have the ability to sort of, to make a difference. And so one of the questions getting to, I like what was said earlier with Adam, which is what's the why, but my philosophy is like small victories, right? So what small victory can I have in this situation? And remembering like, what is the thing that I can control in this? Cause there may be things I can't control, right? But what can I control, right? And, and I think that's, so even asking yourself the question of, okay, in this situation, is there anything I can control? And what is that thing I can control? Because sometimes when we have a setback, we get so hung up on the thing we can't control. What we need to be focusing on is what is the thing within situation that I can control? Right, exactly. Um. Sheldon, did you get your microphone? No, you're just listening? Okay, cool. Sorry, uh, Jennifer, do you wanna? Sure, uh, so I remember it's even a few years ago, um, I was telling my therapist, I was like, but I may have this for life. And she reminded me that, and even that is temporary. So there are things that's, that we may deal with for the duration of our lifetime that may not go away. Mm -hmm. But remembering that even if something lasts our lifetime, that is still impermanent. That is still mm -hmm. temporary. And that was kind right. of like a, a big like, oh, right. It's not forever. It may be mm -hmm. in my lifetime, but it is not forever. Um, and for some that may be morbid, for some that may be comforting, but it was just kind of a, a point that was profound for me. Um, and just the reminder that everything is impermanent in this life. Uh, and those setbacks, yeah, those days on the couch where I can't do squat and I do question my purpose and meaning and like, what am I doing here if I'm only on the couch watching TV because that's all I can do today. Uh, but rem remembering that these days come and go, they're unpredictable. And I love the idea of control because I'm kind of a recovering control freak and having to learn the letting go of controls. So that's a whole other kind of topic for discussion. Um, but it is remembering that like in a few hours, things may be different. Tomorrow may be different. And if it's not, I'm going to roll with it and focus on doing the best I can that day. Um, whether it's not, whether or not it's what I was hoping for or had planned, it's just kind of like, oh, well, there's a setback, but I'm just going to make the most of it. So some of it is like not getting so hung up in the, oh, I can't do this and, and all the I can'ts or shoulda, woulda, coulda, but it's just kind of, oh, all right, this too will pass at some point. Um, and sometimes that'll be tomorrow and sometimes that will be much, much later. So it, it's, it is giving up that control and just learning to roll with it the best that we can. Right. And not only that, but um, you're, so we're not talking here about the physical disability that may be permanent, but the, what you do with it, you know, uh, 
in your life, you're finding your purpose. If you're positive toward it or negative, sure, it's gonna. You're not gonna. You're gonna think negatively the whole time about your disability. But if you, and that's fine when you first become disabled. If it takes you a few years, a few months, whatever, to get to realize some of the positive aspects of your disability, then better things come. You just have to have patience. But I also think it's important, I like this notion of impermanence, because the flip side of that is it's actually also okay to have impermanent days where you don't like your disability. So I think part of dealing with adversity is recognizing that there are going to be days where it really isn't great. And it's okay to be like, you know what, this kind of sucks. I don't like it. Mm -hmm. But having that be the impermanent state of how you view it. So in that moment, you can say it sucks, but it doesn't have to permanently define your outlook on the disability. But I think it is, it is important if you're going to deal with the diversity to give yourself space mm -hmm to feel how you might feel and to, to, to feel those emotions and to deal with that feeling. Right. But not to let it define you. But I do think it is important to sort of give yourself the space to impermanently be mad or upset or frustrated at whatever system or situation you might find yourself in, because it's not one of the, the traps I think that people with disabilities fall into and others on the, I would be curious whether they think is, there's this notion that we have to be heroic about this journey all of the time. And like, there are just sometimes we're like, you know what? I don't really want to be heroic about this. I don't, I don't like it. And um, sometimes you know, it sucks. Yes, exactly. And, it, that yeah. it's okay, and it's okay to say that, but have it be impermanent. So, so viewing, giving your space to impermanently feel the way you feel without letting it define you. Yeah, a few months That's ago, we did another uh, roundtable with Jennifer, too. Uh, we talked about grief, you know, having to do with having a disability and the different stages of that grief that we deal with. And it's not fluid. It, 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 there's five stages. Uh, Jennifer, do you want to talk about that? Sure. Yeah, just briefly. I, I could not agree with you more on everything that you just said. That was fantastic. Um, yeah, because we are human and we do feel all the feelings and uh, mm -hmm. it, we need to feel those. Um, they're not something to be just swept under the rug and pretend that everything is great and it's unicorns and rainbows because it's not. And that's just not the human experience, regardless of people living with disability or not. Right. Uh, and yeah, grief, like we can read, oh, there's five stages. It's Grief is not a linear process. No. And it comes and goes in waves. Sometimes those waves are tsunamis. Sometimes they're little ripples. And we can ride those waves and it's going to come and go and be all the different things. It's going to be depression, anger, uh, acceptance. It's going to be all of those. And sometimes it's a mishmash of all of it. So um, just understanding that it's it's more like we're swimming in an ocean of it. And we're going to be kind of moved around by the tide a bit as well. So uh, but yes, we need to feel all those feelings and process them. But I love the point of 
letting either the grief or, um, you know, just being kind of in that muck, letting that be the impermanent thing. And right. it can take some of that social support to help pull us out of that, but we need to feel it. And I think it's important to actually sit in that for a finite amount of time. You know, you might throw yourself a pity party for like 10 minutes, 30 minutes, maybe a day at most, but then like, all right, you felt that, process that, and now it's time to move forward in some way, however that looks for you. But uh, yeah, like feel the muck, sit in it, and hopefully um, have the social support to be able to be present with you in those moments as well and to move forward with you. It's perfectly okay. It's healthy even to be able to realize that you have, maybe you have a setback and you need to recharge and things are just getting too hectic and you got to step back and, you know, whether people have an opinion about that, okay, you have your opinion, but that doesn't help me any. You don't know where, what I'm dealing with. So you do you, and that's not the kind of social circle I want to be in. <laughs> so um, what do you think about that, David? I'm bad to me, man. I mean, I'm sorry, sorry. I was thinking Adam, David. Everybody yeah. does that. That's okay. <laughs> well, in general, I've tried not to let my work define my life as much. So then I'm not bothered by the setbacks like I used to be. Mm -hmm. um, it's funny what we're talking about of letting things go. It sounds like the serenity prayer, knowing what you can control and what you can't. Right. I've been doing a lot of Buddhist meditation this year. And it's part of my life now. Everything is temporary, like Jennifer just said. Um, and I've been, I've been seeing even what you might call setback is not a setback. It just is. So it doesn't matter. I just continue to build beautiful things and then let them, let them fly or let them be destroyed. Just build beautiful sand castles and just let them happen. Um, and I'm well beyond caring what anybody thinks of. It's something happens and a setback. It's uh, I'm the only person that ever really cared enough. And I'm starting to let go of that, of letting it define me and letting it define how I feel about life. Um. But some days are harder than others. Yesterday was a very hard day to be a human being. It just sucked. I just did not want to be a human being. Um, but today was a little bit better. And um, I just, you know, I put so much of my heart into what I do. But, yeah, I'm just letting the, you know, let the pain come and go. Um Sometimes that's all we can do. You just have to have, you know, hopefully you have to hope you have the right people around you to help you get out of that space. 
support networks is is everything. Mm -hmm. My friend brought me out of it. I told her after we spent five hours together, you completely changed my day from negative mm -hmm. 1,000 to 100. Mm -hmm. oh, what about you, Daniel? I think that's one of the things we often overlook as part of resilience is identifying who in our network is willing, willing and able to support us, but also identifying with them what area in which they are most capable of doing so. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we have to think about our needs as being primary in that equation, but if you end up asking someone who may be really comfortable sitting with you through the process and say, well, mm -hmm. the immediate thing on my mind right now is I need to ride to the store. They may be willing to do that, but it's not going to be fully leveraging their skills and talents. Right. And mm -hmm. it's going to probably lead to burnout. So sometimes we need to take a really good inventory of what our needs are, take a good inventory of what our support network is willing, is willing and able to offer, and then mm -hmm. find better matches, even if they're not immediately intuitive so that we can create a much um, more sustainable pattern of being able to interact with our with our tribe. That's something that's really important that I've had to learn the hard way is there's a lot of people that were in my friend group. There's a whole lot of people that would be very quick to run in and say, yes, I'm happy to do this for you. <clears throat> there were much fewer people that were willing to come in and say, Yes, I'm willing to help you do this. I'm willing to help you do this with me. I'm willing to help you get to the store and do the grocery shop. And instead of just you stay there, I'll go do it for you. And and there's a lot of people that like really wanted to be helpful in my life, but they just could not handle the fact that like I live in constant pain. Like I am in pain all the time. My very best day would drive most people insane. And that's okay. I'm used to it. This is the way my life is. I, I'm not going to sit around and cry about it all day. <laughs> but there's so many people, surprisingly to me, that cannot handle the fact that I'm in pain. And if they can't fix it or they can't offer a couple old wives' tale cures that will fix it, they would end up separating from me because they can't handle being around me knowing that I'm hurting. And I'm like... I may be hurting, but I still need to get to the grocery store. I still got stuff to do. I still got bills to pay. I can't just, you know, sit here and whine about it. And finding those right people that are willing to help me accomplish what I need to accomplish and come in alongside and work with me and not just, oh, you poor baby, you sit there, I'll do it for you, has been very important. And I've tried to cultivate those friendships and I value those so very highly. Yeah. I think to that point as well, finding people who we can build reciprocity with. So, you know, we talk about receiving service, but it's equally, if not more important to find people who are willing to receive service from us, because if we don't have that, then it doesn't take long before those relationships start to feel like they're built on pity as opposed to genuine love and affection. And able to really be there for one another and so those can start eroding in our humanity really quickly if we're not careful mm -hmm. absolutely anybody else to say about that 
one thing I would like to say about the impermanence aspect would be I've always looked at the hard times that come in my life kind of like a storm. And no matter how bad that storm may be right now, it's always temporary. It, the sun always rises after the fact. I will have Tourette's for the rest of my life, and it will it'll be tough for the rest of my life. But like having really bad days, those come and go. Having other stressors and things that might make life harder right now, they come and go. And I don't allow myself to get caught up in how scary or gloomy it looks right now in the middle of the storm and get caught up on this. I try and keep myself focused on the sun rising again after the storm and the rainbow that's going to come after it. And, you know, all the good things that I'm going to see tomorrow when I get past this bad day. And maybe today is a day that I'm shaking so bad I can't get out of bed by myself and make it three feet into the bathroom and I have to ask for help and that's frustrating and it makes me angry and I want to cry and I want to be mad today because that sucks. And it's okay that that sucks today, but it doesn't necessarily mean tomorrow is going to be that bad. It doesn't mean the day after is not going to be that bad. Tomorrow I may be driving myself to the grocery store. So, you know, I'm, if today's bad, if it's a storm, it can be a storm. I'm going to let that happen, and I'm going to just focus on what's coming afterwards. And it has been such a blessing to my life to adopt that mindset. And the more actively I pursue that and remind myself of it in the midst of that storm has been such a blessing. And like counting, counting those positive things in my life when everything else really stinks right now. And I could focus on the fact that I can't walk and I can't talk today and I can't draw, which means I can't make any money. And, you know, I could focus on all that, but I could instead choose to focus on the fact that I can listen to my daughter tell me about her day at work today and, you know, enjoy how excited she is about this customer that came in and listen right. to that story. Yeah. I can pet my dogs. I, you know, there's good things I can do. I can be a friend. I can reach out to people on Facebook and check in on them and, you know, see how they're doing. There's good things I can do and not focus on the fact that eh, maybe I'm shaking too bad to walk today. <laughs> All very valid points, uh, Crystal. Are you ready? Yeah. Okay. okay. So we wanted to talk about reframing setbacks as opportunities for growth. And uh, we wanted to give you another point to maybe... Uh, speak to and that is uh, knowing about the negative things that have happened in your life and how those have given you tools to uh, reprocess and um, be aware of problems that may crop up in the future and how to cope with them. Um, does anyone have something to say about that? I mean, I, I will say that I, you know, I, when I think about this question, again, it gets back to the, the, the philosophy of, you know, what can you control? What did you learn? But also like making choices. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is when, sometimes when you have a setback, whatever it's work-related, personal life, 
physical condition, whatever it is, we can get paralyzed and we stop making choices, right? And sorry, I'm, I'm telling a lot of stories today, but one of my favorite books ever written is a book called Touching the Void about this guy. It was written by a mountain climber named Joe Simpson. And it's about a mountaineering expedition where he and another individual named Simon went and they got caught in the middle of a storm. And he breaks his leg in the middle of the storm and his buddy's trying to lower him down the mountain 300 yards at a time. And they get caught in this really bad storm and they don't realize they get, he, they, he, they lower him over a crevasse. So his buddy actually has to cut the rope because if he doesn't cut the rope, they're both going to fall off the mountain. So he cuts the rope. Somehow Joe survives the fall of like 300 feet into this crevasse and the bottom of this crevasse. And he crawls, he crawls his way off the mountain. And one of the most powerful things that he talks about that I like, because he, they said, well, this he just crawled deeper into the crevasse and it, eventually it lit out and he was able to crawl his way back to the base camp. But they said, why did you crawl down the dark crevasse? You know, in the book, if like people ask him that. And he said, because he knew he couldn't get up. And the only choice he had was to keep crawling no matter how dark it looked. Because once you stop making choices on the mountain, he says, you die. And it really helped me reframe not that I've had anything that severe happen in my life, but when setbacks happen to me, like, you know, our initial reaction is we get so paralyzed by fear or anxiety or how we feel frustration that we stop making choices. And so one of the things that I try to do in terms of reframing it for growth is, okay, what are, what choices do I have? Cause one of the biggest sort of cop outs that we'll tell ourselves in a moment of crisis is I don't have a choice. Well, you always have a choice. You may not love the choices that you have. They may all look like a dull crevasse that you're crawling into, but you have choices, right? And so instead of saying to yourself, I don't have any choices, but asking yourself, no matter how bad the choices may look, what are the choices that I actually have in this situation? None of them may be ideal and choices that I would prefer, but what are they? And can I make a choice based on that? It's just something that I try to do whenever a setback happens. It might not feel like a great choice. It could be the difference between laying in the mud or standing up and being knee deep in the mud, but I would rather stand up and brush myself off <laughs> and at least only be knee deep if I can, rather than being face right. down. And right. I've faced so many setbacks in my life, like everything that's happened with my disability getting worse, losing my job, losing my ability to you know earn a living, all these things, but they all led to something else. And it's not the kind of life that I had envisioned, but I got to become an advocate. I got to become, you know, more involved in my kids' lives. I, when I couldn't get a job going back into doing graphic design and stuff that I used to do, I ended up have, being forced to build my own freelance career. And now I'm living my childhood dream of making comic books for a living. Like, I'm doing now what I always dreamed of doing as a kid, and it's only because things got really hard and left me no other choice, and I had to get creative. So now I kind of enjoy when these storms come because I know something cool, cool is going to be on the other side of it. Like it that, that is what is meant by sometimes, you know, the setbacks are what we need to have those better things that, you know, Finding our purpose, 
you know, yeah. I Jennifer. That's sorry, Jennifer. Oh. Yeah, I just love what has been said so far on on this. I love it. Um, and I, I've written about like finding the gift in the experience. And I know for some people, depending on like where they are in their journey, they're like, how can there possibly be a gift? Like basically like WTF, like I don't think so. <laughs> um, and some might see that also in this case of growth is like, well, how can this setback be an opportunity for growth, but I think it's important to recognize that even if you don't see it in the moment, like if we're open to the possibility that any setback, whatever it is, can be an opportunity for growth. Like if we're just open to the possibility, I think that that's the important part because you may not see it in the moment. It may take years to surface is like, oh, that's what I gained from that experience. So it doesn't always happen all at once. Um, but yeah, no matter how many like setbacks I have had, how many life altering things that I have experienced in the last near 10 years, uh, since my brain injury, all of it ultimately has been a continual growth experience for me personally, um, in my own development, but also like what I can share with the world, because I know that all the setbacks that I have, I share that. And again, like, like was said earlier, um, it was becoming an advocate, helping others because of essentially the pain and suffering I've experienced that hopefully then reduces that of others. So there's the growth, like there's the opportunity, um, but it doesn't always surface right away. So just, you know, not everything's instant gratification, but as, as long as we're open to the possibility, we'll find it, we'll find that growth, we'll find that gift whenever it decides to present itself. Yeah, great, great points there. Uh, and what you were saying, Jennifer and Fish, reminded me of uh, something I don't remember where I heard, heard it, but you might have heard it as well, that uh, sort of to paraphrase that your points, a setback is a setup for a comeback right and sometimes yeah. you don't always don't always see it until after it's kind of over and you're you had time to process it but while you're going through the storm you don't always see what's on the other side absolutely what do you uh, do you have anything uh adam um, well, really quick, challenges make us who we are. Nobody learned a damn thing from being on easy street. Um, you know, one of the uh, best things that ever happened to me that sent me down years of challenges was when my parents kicked me out and I was homeless when I was 16. And I had to learn how to take care of myself. And, um, and you know, some things that I learned stuck with me my entire life, but um, <laughs> to find who I am. And I think a lot of us, that's what, that's what builds character. You know, mm -hmm. you don't learn character by somebody just, I don't know, always having what you wanted given to you with, with no effort. So 
I don't see it as setbacks. I think as Jennifer was alluding to, it's just part of our life. And mm -hmm. it's probably the, maybe the best parts of our life in some ways. Yeah, yeah definitely. That's not saying that um, we're not, we don't, our character is not, you know, instilled in us and we don't make our own character and we don't draw character from our experiences and childhood and stuff like that. But, you know, there comes a point where we have our own experiences away from those things and we build character onto, onto that. Yes. You know? Yes. But, you know, we're still, it's still okay to be like, God damn it. I wish, excuse me. I wish things were a lot easier. <laughs> yeah. It's okay to say that some days, but, but it's the toughness. It's, it's that it's what makes us tough. That makes us valuable. I think. Mm -hmm. Right. Which we're talking about growth in the, in the midst of, you know, all this, um, certainly that character in those setbacks are opportunities for growth, you know? Yeah, 100%. All of us here have been able to build our own communities and help our own people in the disability community. You can't and I tell me that our setbacks of having our own disability has not made us that kind of person. I also think when you think about reframing things as opportunities for growth, one of the questions you should always ask yourself is not only what do I do when something bad happens, but what have I done before when something turned out right? Because one of the things to think about to, to help you sort of problem solve for yourself or, you know, like I will talk to my wife or talk to, you know, my family or friends or whomever is, you know, okay, what did I get? What did I do when this thing worked out well? Right. So if I, if I've had, you know, what, so trying to, to remember when you're reframing, what is it that you've done in the past when something's gone the way you wanted it to, to go? And is there anything from any of those experiences that you can apply to the current situation you might be in that is less than ideal in that impermanent moment, like we discussed before, but like, again, so often we get talked about like, and I like what you said, Adam, about the toughness in the character. But I think one of the things that's helpful is out of that experience, you have a wealth of knowledge of what you did when things went the way you actually wanted them to go. And that's one of the ways you can frame it as, okay, what, what, did, I, what did I do? What are some of the things I do when things actually turn out the way I want them to? And does any of that, and it may not, depends on the situation, but does any of that apply here is a question you can always ask yourself. Thanks. It's a new thought process. I'm, I'm going to write that down. Thanks. <laughs> and also, was there anything when things went right that maybe I should do better next time? Because like, I know personally, when I found a mix of meds that helped and I was exercising and eating right and I lost some weight and my Tourette's got a whole lot easier day to day, I became really uncomfortable all of the sudden in the Tourette's chat rooms and stuff because I knew how to interact in that world when I had severe Tourette's when all of a sudden I could walk around big chunks of the day and nobody in town knew I had Tourette's 
I didn't I didn't know how to act there. And so I pulled back and I shouldn't have pulled back. I should have stayed engaged. But I got scared because I was uncomfortable in this new, healthier aspect. And it took a while for me to start getting engaged again. And now I know that's something I need to keep an eye on when things do go good that I don't think, oh, well, I don't belong here anymore because my life's not quite as hard anymore. Uh, it, it was, I, I don't know how you would define it, but I've heard that sort of thing called like imposter syndrome. Mm -hmm. you know, sort of feels that way maybe oh yeah it was really easy to encourage people when i was suffering terribly and you know and they're upset that they're blinking a lot and i'd be like dude you can drive man you got a job there's all kinds of awesome stuff going in your life man you, you rejoice in that but now all of a sudden that nobody around me at at this new church knew that I had Tourette's when before I couldn't get through a sermon without yelling out all kinds of random stuff. Like it was a very different feeling. And I just, I could just go to the store and nobody stared at me except for the fact I'm six and a half feet tall. And it was, it was weird. And now all of a sudden I felt like an imposter in those Tourette's groups when I'm talking with people that are getting kicked out of stores for, you know, ex swearing uncontrollably or something. And I let that keep me from being involved and I shouldn't have done that, but, but that's a me thing. It's a good I, lesson. I, good lesson. Yeah. I think Mark and I can relate to that on some level because, you know, having a progressive disability, you always have a disability. Yes. But sometimes it, presents a lot worse and a lot you know it can it can be stagnant for months you know and then it just automatically gets worse or there's setbacks or whatever needs to happen and that's fine and we have to readapt our lives you know for it's like having a whole new disability you know but um, but again, that's opportunity for growth, you know? And that can be confusing for people around us that are not disabled, don't understand our disability because they're like, oh, she's fine, he's fine. You know, they're just faking it or they're, they're oh. you know, they're probably not as bad as they, they say they are. But that's not it. Yeah, or that, with the, with it, like Crystal was saying, with a disability like ours, which can change sometimes from day to day. Some days are better, some days are worse. Other people around us might think something like, oh, our prayers and well wishes for this person are working and they're here now and everything's <laughs> better yeah, yeah. that's and just because i look better to you doesn't yeah. mean i feel better on the inside like right. it could be really bad on the inside and you can't see it right but it's, you look fine right yeah, but you so look fine that's a whole yeah we can and that's one of the things that frustrates me about like having a neurological disorder and particularly one as as mm -hmm. peculiar as tourette's is 
I'm not missing my legs. If I was missing my legs at the knee, it would be obvious, and you couldn't argue with me that they're really there. I just need to believe they're there. But, like, when I look okay one day, or I'm sitting in my recliner watching TV completely relaxed, and I seem fine, you don't see the internal tics. You don't see me flexing my stomach muscles or tugging at my shirt. And then you're like, hey, can you come help me fold the laundry? And then I stand up, and all of a sudden I'm stitching and jerking. Like, you didn't know that that was going on inside (laughs) because you didn't see it. But now that I stand up and I'm sending out more signals to stand, walk, do this, and more mixed signals are shooting out at the same time, now it's obvious. And, you know, some people are just like, if you don't want to do the laundry, just tell me you don't want to do the laundry. You're going to put on a show about it. I'm like, no, I want to help. I might only have one arm cooperating, but I'm here to help. Yeah, I'm sure we've all experienced that. It's just frustrating. Is well, are we ready to go on? Yeah, that kind of goes into what we just talked about. <laughs> so, um, there, I mean, everyone has different words for this, but I mean, to paraphrase, uh, cognitive distortions could be like outright lies or could be you know, half-truths or whatever people choose to believe about us with disabilities or maybe in some cases we believe about ourselves because other people have imposed their views or some societal norms on us or whatever, right? And um, uh, so we felt this... so dangerous. Yeah, and we felt a lot of a lot of what needs to be done here is for us as individuals to be able to discern the truth from what we know about ourselves and what our gifts and talents are innately as opposed to what other people are telling us we should or shouldn't do or we can or can't do or about how the world works, et cetera. Um, what does, does anybody have anything to say about that? Yeah. Yeah, Jennifer. Yeah, a couple, couple examples, two very different ones. Well, similar but different. Um, so years ago, and this was even years after my brain injury had occurred, but I had a then friend tell me that all that I didn't have any problems and that they were all in my subconscious. Mm-hmm. Um, Neil's to say that that relationship ended at that point. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have a zero tolerance policy for invalidation. Mm-hmm. Um, when I have like how, how many years of medical documentation to say otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, but at that moment, like, I had to look at, it was a, like via text and I was like, are they right? Like, is all this, you know, like in my head? And like, it made me start to, to question myself and, and what I knew to be true. Um, and it, it made me think like, well, am I, am I just crazy? And 
in my in my brain injury support group that I attend, um, we've talked a lot about that because, as was mentioned, of having like an invisible disability, um, especially when it comes to yeah, like neurological things that are not obvious to people. Um, there are often even providers who tell us that it's all psychosomatic and it's all in our head. So we actually, um, I designed a shirt for our group that says, it is all in my head. I have a freaking brain injury. Because it's like, yes, it is because my brain is in my head. Like, very good. Oh, so good. So, you know, we, we turned the tables on that and we made a joke about it. And that was one way to approach it. But it, it can make us, when we, when we uh, internalize something, Thing that somebody says or the society puts on us it can make us question ourselves and like our right. sanity or like well really like am i that disabled right like when i applied for disability it took me a while before i even decided to go through that process because i was thinking well you know other people have it worse than i do right and uh, it's like, yeah but i can't work anymore i had to close my business of 12 years because i can't work anymore and it was like oh Right. Or they don't want to complain, so they don't fill the forms out correctly. Like, oh, well, it's not really that bad. Like, look, right. you need help so, with this. Right. You need to say you need help. With yeah. This. So I had That's... to get honest with myself right. about it, um, mm -hmm. as well as the things that were projected onto me. Um, so mm -hmm. it, it's both of that. It's like the things that we that we believe about ourselves. And we, the question I always ask is, is this true? And the question after that is, like, how do I know? Um, cause there, there are those days, like those, those bad days where I'm like, no one cares about me. I don't contribute anything to the world. Like, you know, I go into that mode for, you know, a finite amount of time it's impermanent, mm -hmm. but then I have to ask myself, is this true? And I go, no. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, that's, that's a tool that I use because then it, it gets that reality check, even if it's my own beliefs that are getting mm -hmm. me down. Um, mm -hmm and one that may be helpful to others. Is this true? And you know, that toxic gaslighting and manipulation is so dangerous. And so I, I really, it, it hurts me to know that I've been through it, you know, and not only from the medical community, but other people around me that don't understand and, you know, have their own opinions about my disability. You know, it hurts me to know that that's partly why this exists. Because I don't want, I want people to have the headspace to know that that is not what needs to be happening in the world. And there's so much negativity out there that people yeah. need to know have the tools to deal with those things and know that that's not okay. And uh, also, I, sorry, go ahead, Adam. Real quick, I just don't have the energy to explain my invisible disability to people. Um, and I, um, you know, I, I also gaslight myself, like, you know, maybe I can get through this, you know, but I do question and then test my assumptions jennifer i'm like well then i you know if, if i don't have a memory disability maybe i should be able to remember that movie or what happened in that movie that i watched two weeks ago what was the main plot point or that you know and that happens again and again and again so i guess you know 
I proved to myself I do have an issue that other people don't have. But then, you know, like, you know, and I'm running for office right now. And I can't remember meeting people who had wonderful conversations with me and really support me in my campaign. And God is that <clears throat> disheartening to me and them when I can't remember that I ever met them. And how do you take their time in five seconds to explain that when you're going through a crowd, you know, like, and people don't want to believe it. That's, that's so true. And I don't want to believe it sometimes. Right. Like I want to tell myself I can get beyond this, even though I have been trying and, and maybe learn some skills that mitigate the effects. Um, uh, uh, so fuck, I can't remember. The name. That brings up Hopscotch. I've been working yeah. with yeah. <laughs> That brings a good, up a good point that you mentioned. And so did Jennifer, you know, those internalized ableism things that have been imposed on us you know those are embedded in our brain and they come naturally to think to ourselves when we don't do something we think we should be doing or want to be doing you know that comes out and that's yeah. horrible it is. And uh, further to that point from all three of you, Jennifer, Crystal, and Adam, you know, it's uh, it's like like Crystal said, this, um, this thing that we've, this internal thing that we have, this mechanism that causes us to think, oh, the doctor's always right, or people that may have a diploma on the wall are smarter than I am and therefore they can discern the truth better than I can, right? Um, that's sort of an internal thing that's been passed down through generations and slowly, slowly going away, but maybe not fast enough for some people that yeah. uh, people like doctors are always right. So then you go into a doctor's office with the mindset, oh, here's an expert. And they may actually tell you directly, I'm an expert. <laughs> and then you feel guilty for not believing them or you want to take their word because they know better. They know what's going on with you better than you do. And... Uh, it's just stress. It's not a real issue. Just go home and relax. <laughs> yeah. 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 It, or it's just an allergic reaction or something like that. <laughs> well, I love what you said, what you said, Jennifer, where you, because one of the things I often will tell my students with anxiety, for example, is your feelings are real. And I want to acknowledge that they're real. Are they true? Right. Because particularly, you know, when you have an invisible disability and you have the psychology that comes on top of it, you do have those feelings of like, I don't matter. I'm not contributing. Nobody cares. And that's a real feeling. And you need to acknowledge that it's a real feeling, but also ask yourself, is that is that a true feeling? And I, I think the other point that I want people with disabilities to remember you're an expert on your particular disability as it relates to you. And never, ever, ever lose that idea. 
Like I always say, I'm an expert on my cerebral palsy as it relates to me, right? Mm -hmm. So like when somebody tries to help me up if I fall or help me with something, I'm the best judge of for to tell them how to best do that, right? Just like other kinds of disabilities. And don't let someone rob you of the reality. The truth is you're an expert on your disability as it relates to your body. And don't ever lose that knowledge about yourself. And so when you're in the doctor's office or when you're with family members who are saying, well, if you just thought more positively, you wouldn't be tired all the time, Jennifer, you know, or if you just, if you just did this, you know, uh, you would, you would, you would feel better, you know, but it's like, don't ever forget that you're an expert on your disability as it relates to you. And they are not, they may love you, but they are not an expert on the disability as it relates to you because they're not experiencing it inside the body, which gets to the point earlier about having invisible ticks that nobody can see, but you can feel. Mm-hmm. So well yeah, said. I, I fought my whole life with this. Cause like I said, I didn't get diagnosed until I was 30. And so I had this mystery disease my whole life. And most of the time it was little stuff like rubbing my nose or pulling up my lips or repeating stuff that I saw on TV and all kids do annoying stuff like that. So it wasn't a big deal. I wasn't like flopping around like I had a seizure or screaming out swear words or obvious tics that people would know to look for. And so it would get really bad every once in a while and we would go to the doctor and they would do the test and they'd try and see if I had diabetes or this, that, or the other. And we would look into it for a little while. And then I would have a really weird tick. Like one time my eyes crossed and I couldn't get them to uncross. And the doctor would always say, ah, see, he's faking it for attention. He's trying to get out of school, just send him back. And, you know, and I remember that time particularly well, because we'd go home and my mom's just yelling at me all the two weeks I just missed a school. And I cannot get my eye across enough to get a cup of water off my bed stand. And I'm crying. I don't know how to get this to stop. And it just got internalized in me as a kid that I must be doing this for attention. And so for the rest of my life, I was trying to force this to stop as hard as I possibly could. And I only found out later after I got diagnosed and met other people with Tourette's, the more I tried to fight it, the worse I made it. And, you know, it was like pouring gas on a fire trying to keep it from happening. And so it would quickly go from a twitch of the shoulder. But if I'm trying not to let that shoulder twitch, then all of a sudden everything starts to shake. And now I can't see and now I can't walk. And now I'm on crutches and I'm in a wheelchair. Next thing you know, I'm flopping on the ground. But if I just let the ticks go and it's a whole lot easier. But I had to learn that from experience with other people and unlearn all those false beliefs that right. I had in my head. And that, yeah, you, that internalized ableism just hurts us so much. Mm-hmm. It really does. It's horrible. Mm-hmm. So are you guys ready for the next one? Always. Yes, so uh, the next point we want to talk about is um, managing strong emotions and impulses. I mean, in especially in light of uh, what we just talked about, being uh, 
gaslighted or gaslit um, and uh, and um, invalidated and dismissed. I mean, they're depending on how aware you are of it in the moment, that can come with some strong emotions and impulses. And um, that may throw the whole idea of resilience kind of out the window because it kind of derails the derails the path that we're on. So what does, does anyone have anything to say about that? I think it's important to be able to discern, you know, those those things. And, you know, like Court was saying, we're all the, the um, what is the word? Uh, we're, we're all the, the, I can't think of the word, we're all the knower of our own disability. <laughs> um, so if somebody is trying to tell us that's not our experience, we have to be able to say, yes, it is. And just internally know that they're just ignorant about the situation. And then that way we don't get into those negative emotions and impulses dealing with that. So at least with traumatic brain injury, because of the brain damage, emotional dysregulation is a normal thing to experience. And uh, so those of us with brain injuries uh, usually have a very difficult time and sometimes uh, very, very difficult time regulating emotions because our brains just don't work the same way. Um, there are tools that I've learned um, through practice of yoga. I've been a certified yoga instructor for seven years and have a certi certification in yoga philosophy. Mm -hmm. And there's also a um, program, yoga program specifically for the traumatic brain injury community called Love Your Brain. And um, they have also offered some great tools for helping to manage those times when you feel like everything's just out of control and you can't regulate that. So there are tools that I have learned, but uh, for me, it's especially like in those moments where like, I will, I'll have my freak out. And part of me knows that like, I'm going to have a freak out moment. Like I kind of need to do that and feel whatever I feel, even if it's for a minute and then like, okay, now I can like recenter, like be in my body, like, you know, can I feel my fingers, my toes? Like, you know, I kind of do like a body scan to like get back in my own skin, breathe, right? It's just coming back into the moment, coming back into yes. all that. Yep. And, and those things are really helpful. They're so simple. Like, oh, am right. I breathing? Um, yeah. The and, meditation is. Yeah. So I, it's like, I couldn't get by with that. <laughs> yeah. But it's like, I know for me, like I will have my freak out moment. And then I'll come back to like reality and, you know, reality mm -hmm. check and analyze the yeah. situation better. Um, but I know that about myself and, and you know, being the expert in your own disability in your body, that's one of the things I know for me. Like, I'm 
not going to always remember my tools in that split second before right. I have a reaction. Mm. So it's like, okay, I'm, I'm gonna have my freak out moment. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but at least I know that. Um, but also when I, so like when I had that situation with my former friend who said that, um, I decided I, I did not respond. Well, I did not, I did not engage because I knew I was going to be reactive and not have a response. And so like, I knew that I didn't want to have those strong emotions and impulses that I might later regret. I was like, I am so angry. I need to process this and I need to figure out myself before I can even think about engaging. So sometimes it's like you have to take that step back no matter how long it is so that you avoid those impulsive reactions and instead can later respond to a situation if you have the opportunity. If you're in the doctor's office and you know, it's in the moment you don't have that opportunity to have a response later. Um, right. We have to deal with those situations as they come, but it, it can help to even just like pause for a few breaths to be able to respond as opposed to react. But knowing that sometimes we don't have the capacity to do that <laughs> and reactions happen. Coming to understand that about myself has been a huge blessing and made a huge shift in how I handle situations like that. Because like as an undiagnosed kid, I didn't know Tourette's usually comes with autism and OCD and impulse control and all this stuff. And I didn't realize the rage was going to be such a big issue for me. I just thought, well, I'm a gun. And if you pulled my trigger, it's your own fault for getting shot. It's not, my, you should have known not to pull that trigger. And growing up and maturing and learning, realizing how my brain works and that like, essentially I've got like a glitch in the software and sometimes the input that comes in gets a much bigger reaction than it was supposed to get, you know? And like, just because my kid dumped his glass of milk over at dinner doesn't mean I should be screaming at the top of my lungs. Like it's not the end of the world, but it's getting this, you know, fight or flight, you know, into the world reaction and realizing that i'm not a monster and i'm you know i'm not a bad dad i'm not inherently evil there's just a glitch in the software in my processing has helped me take all the guilt off of having that issue which makes it easier to deal deal with and lets me handle it more objectively and like if something happens and i realize hey you're yelling my immediate reaction is okay, we are going to stop. We're going to stop this right now. We're going to come back to this later when we're not, you know, upset. We're going to give ourselves an hour or a day or whatever it takes. And then we're going to come back and address this. And, you know, if we come back in an hour and the spilt milk is actually the end of the world and we're all going to be homeless and the house <laughs> is burning down, then we can have a tantrum about that. More likely than not, it's not going to be that big a deal and we can deal with it more objectively. And that has helped me so much realizing, you know, like it's just some it's just another one of the things that my brain doesn't do quite right. Helps me stop myself in that time and helps me take that time. Like when somebody says something that hurts my feelings or my wife 
brings up something that she's upset about that I did, you know, knowing, you know what, right now is not the time for me to, to give an answer to this issue. I need time to think about it. I need time to compose my thoughts. I need time to make sure my response isn't tainted with being afraid or being angry or having my feelings hurt and I can deal with it objectively. And that has made such a big difference. And letting my wife know that, you know, yeah, everything's turned up to 15 with me and I might yell for a second, but usually if I can catch myself, I'm like, okay, what? going to stop. Sorry. We'll come back and we'll deal with it later. It's been a huge lifesaver for me. It takes a big person to be able to say that these are the issues and let's table it and revisit that. And it's not your fault. It's not mine. I didn't choose to have this disability, but it, that's what we need to do. Mm -hmm. And it's not all bad. I'm also really funny and I can laugh really, really hard and really crack myself up. Right. I'm super right. creative. I, you know, there's a lot of good things. There's a couple of things that, you know, I realize That's don't work so well. Yes. But if the non-disabled community is so dead set on seeing our negative attributes and not what we have to give positive in a positive way, then that's what's damaging. And that's what part of the world is so messed up, you know, because of that. Mm -hmm. Well, I think the bigger challenge there is that actually that the able-bodied ideology, one of the things that it does is frame the sort of disability journey uh, that it wants to see as heroic or inspirational. And the challenge with that, you know, we see that in, in churches and all kinds of faith-based and other places as well. The challenge with that is anybody that's outside of that, like acting in an inspirational way, anybody that might be having a moment of freak out or not be reacting and being positive about their circumstances and talking about what a blessing it is, the able-bodied community isn't isn't down with anger, but, you know, there are a lot of scholars in the disability studies realm who write about this very effectively, that one of the cultural values is the reality of anger, because we live in a world that's not built for us. And that doesn't mean we let the anger define us, but like, look, sometimes like we get frustrated at the, I get frustrated when my bus service calls and says, hey, by the way, we're going to be two hours late tonight, just so you know. So it's like, okay, like, you know, so you're going to be waiting around for two hours. Thank goodness for books on tape, you know, but, but, or I guess they're not tape anymore. I'm dating myself with that, but audio with, but, but audio books, but, but I mean, but, but I do think that part of the damage actually comes from framing disability, not what, what often happens, right. With, with the able-bodied ideologies that limit us is that, those of us who are those those who are outside making judgments about the disability community are turning three-dimensional disabled characters into two-dimensional 
allegories, two-dimensional stories. So you take the depth out of the human experience of living with a disability and everything that entails, and you turn it into a two-dimensional story that is comfortable for you or the, the able-bodied notion of exactly. what disability should be. And part of that depth of disability is like messiness about it, unhappiness about it sometimes, right? Like. Yeah frustration and anger sometimes. What I try to do is also remember, like when I get frustrated, like I try to, with anything, I try to remember, does this, I try to ask myself a question, right? One of the things I do is I, I will stop, I will meditate, I will breathe. Can I, he, what can I hear, taste, feel, touch in the moment to, to lower things? But then I ask myself this question, does this matter in seven years? I have like a seven-year rule. Like seven years from now, am I gonna even am I gonna even remember this? Right? Like, because that's how I live my life. Like I always joke with um, people that I don't really like doing yard work very much. I, I own a house, I have a yard, but I don't really like yard work very much. And it's it's because like when I'm on my deathbed, right? When when the when the miles to go before I sleep is almost over, and I'm on my deathbed, I don't think I'm going to be thinking to myself, "I wish I would have weeded the flower bed one more time." I don't think that's what I'm going to be saying, right? As I'm ready to shuffle off this. I should have edged the driveway. Yeah, I should have one more time. I should have paved the driveway. You know, like I. So like, um, so but I, I joke with that. But that is that is one of my philosophies. Like, does this thing actually matter? seven years from now that I'm getting so that I'm devoting so much of my inner because it's not your emotion, right? What you're devoting is your energy. Because if you're devoting your energy for that, you have less energy for the other thing. So the first thing you do is to figure out how to calm your body down. And then secondly, figure out, okay, does this matter? And what else could I devote my emotion to? But also recognizing that like anger is a part of this. It's actually okay to be a little irritated when your bus is two hours late. Or when you, when you, I don't know if anybody, well, I'm a person with a physical disability. So I don't know if anybody's had this experience. Like this happened a few times, not a lot, but like you'll call an Uber and you'll be waiting and the Uber driver will see you're on crutches and we just keep rolling on. Yeah. Like, oh man. Like, uh, what just happened? Oh. Luckily, I have a good writer rating on Uber and Lyft. So, like, because my right, because I try to talk and be pleasant to the drivers, because I know because I'm disabled, I want to keep my right, my, my rider rating as high as I can keep it to offset those who might mm -hmm. see the crutches and be not, not in my car. Right? right. And so that's frustrating when that happens, though. And it's like mm -hmm. third day at eight, and I've been working 12 hours. <laughs> I want to get home. Like, yeah. I, like an Uber just blew me off, but like it's part of it. And when you're in a wheelchair, there's only so many vehicles that can carry that wheelchair. Right. And at like peak times, a lot of them are like, no, they'll cancel it right away because they don't uh -huh. want to drive the distance to get to you yeah. because that's going to take too much of their time when they could get fares closer by and you're just stuck for hours right. trying to find a ride and getting canceled. And then like, I got knocked off of Uber one day because we were on vacation in Washington, D.C. And I tried so many times in one hour to get a ride and got yeah. canceled. They blocked me. And I couldn't come back on for a while. I had to download Lyft. And they ended up doing the same thing because it was peak time and nobody wanted that to That sounds exact. Yeah. To the pier and well, get me. And yeah. Uh -huh. It kind of sounds like, you know, the same conversation we have 
with do we disclose our disability in employment? You know, mm -hmm. uh, do you say right away to an Uber driver or a Lyft person that, hey, I have a wheelchair too? Do you do that? Because, you know, I mean, you to, you're not getting that wheelchair in a lot of those vehicles. <laughs> well, the other thing, too, that I do, because again, I don't want them to get there, see the crutches, and then therefore they didn't know. So they give me a, because if you talk to Uber and Lyft drivers, which I'm, I'm a talker, so I do. One of the things that they will tell you is if your writing rating gets to a certain level, there'll be people that just automatically cancel you based on the number of stars you have. So my fear is ultimately, if you don't tell them the truth up front and it's more work for them, they're going to rate you lower. And so that's going to hurt you more than them knowing because that that writer that writer and driver rating actually really matters. And a lot of a lot of Uber drivers will look at a rating and if it's like three stars or below, I'm going to just going to cancel well, it out of here. But if they're rating me on my disability, you know, it stinks, that says but... something about them, not me. Also, yeah, I think there's a legal argument here if we wanted to get into yeah. it. It's pretty oh, so gosh, regular yes. emotions. I'm pretty pissed off right now. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's bullshit. I um now I have a new project to work on because I'm not I don't want that shit to happen <laughs> anymore. Yeah, I'm I'm livid for you guys hearing this and for everyone who has to deal with that. Yeah. Um I these one thing I love about these discussions is that it opens my eyes to other people's realities of what they have to deal with with other kinds of disabilities. And I'm so grateful for this opportunity because I learn something every time. And it definitely yeah, expands my understanding and the the need for advocacy for all people with all disabilities and not Absolutely. selective few. Yeah. Disabilities affect every person in every walk of life. And uh, this definitely helps us and those who watch realize the need for advocacy and uh, like know, one of the things that would, for everybody. Yeah. Like one of the things I wish Uber would do, and I've actually contacted them and Lyft is actually have, I, I would like there to be two features, one disability related, one not. One would be an ADA feature where you could request an ADA ride um like through the app the other would be what's called Uber, her so that women who because i i know my wife will sometimes not want to do ubers by herself right because yeah. she's yeah. Gonna, so like I, I think yeah i think uber and lyft if they had like an Uber her feature type of thing and like an ada feature where you could actually request through the app like an ada ride to take because like and again i'm i'm a very mobile person i run races and stuff and so like it doesn't happen to me very often but again like you, my friends in wheelchairs like people say all oh, lists are so much better than taxis like not really like not not for people in wheelchairs right like it's when it much comes to the uber idea that's the technology that we've developed so that way women feel comfortable wherever they go that's yeah. my company that's what my company does that's awesome. Um, it'll help. That's fear, right? Fear? Yeah, Zier, Zebra Echo fear. Echo Roger, ZierSafe.com. Um, that's the kind of world we want to build is one where everybody feels that they can be themselves anywhere they go. And they don't have to worry about their safety 
because of who they are. Love that, it. That's it. That's what Love I'm going to Wonderful. Never going to quit. Never going to quit, friend. Good, good. I'm really glad that that is such an important aspect to disability, but to women too. And, you know, everybody that's has, uh, you know, is marginalized. Mm -hmm. So, uh, Crystal, what's the next point? Well, we kind of already talked about that. Right? Yeah, we kind of so, did. You guys want to go to the next one? I'm good either way. Okay. I can talk about anything. You might not have noticed. <laughs> no. Yes. Yeah, so, so this one, not seeing yourself as victim, it can, um, you can take it on lots of levels. Like, I mean, very, very directly, very literally, maybe newly diagnosed with something or newly disabled. Um, and you've been, you've had these internal things that people have drilled in your head about if you're disabled, there's something wrong with you and stuff like that. And um, how do you want to address this point, not seeing yourself as a victim? Well, we kind of touched on it a little bit, that internalized ableism that has been fed to us from the inception of our disability, you know, um, is a hard one. But being able to think to yourself, you know, that's not true. That's not my experience. That's not, they're, they're just, I feel bad for them because they just, they're ignorant on the situation, you know, and, and knowing that you're not the victim. Yeah, I just want to address that um, for some people, like they literally were a victim. Um, I know some people who incurred their brain injury because of assault. And so it's like, there's the difference between like, yes, this, uh, this, the circumstance that got you into this, you were actually a victim of something, right? I was also a passenger in multiple car accidents. I could be considered a victim of that. Um, but it's the choice to also like internalize that as you were just talking about crystal and and choosing to play that pity card essentially it's the best way i can put it so it is the difference between identity. like you could have actually been a literal victim um however do you choose to internalize that or did you choose to just be resilient and to adapt and to move forward with your new normal so um, it's I want to kind of clarify that like some people have our victims, but it's their choice of, and I love that idea of like, always coming back to you have a choice. Are you going to stay in victim mode or are you going to realize that that doesn't define you, that that is not who you are in every essence? Um, it Jennifer, I, I got, I became a TBI patient because I'm a victim. Mm -hmm. I was, um, I was assaulted and almost killed about seven years ago. Um, you know, I used to live with this frame of mind that everything that bad that happened to me was my my doing, not because I felt bad about myself, because it gave me the illusion of control. 
now I've kind of beyond that where a little I've grown past that, but I think like uh, somebody quipped in there. I don't let being a victim define me. Um, I was victimized, but it's not, I am a, you know, I can't use the, um, the verb of being the state of being. Um, perfect. Yeah. That the, the distinction between being or to the victimization versus being a victim. So that I'm glad you brought that up. It's a great point. Yeah. I just, uh, I just not how I think of myself. Um, uh, and I, I don't, I don't think it would ever help me. I mean, when I te when I speak to audiences who were victimized themselves, I want them to understand that I understand them. So I am a survivor. I do use that word more than, I, and I, I, you know, I think it's a more empowering word, but also, you know, I am a survivor. I survive. I just keep going. Um, but yeah, you brought it up. So yeah, I was a victim. Um, and that's how I developed or, you know, acquired my disabilities. Um, yeah. And, uh, and I did, you know, to go back to the question or the, you know, the issue, I think if I saw myself as a victim, it would be incredibly disempowering. I think, in fact, I'm getting, a little emotional just thinking about if I spent the last seven years thinking about myself like that, that would be terrible. I, I, love, I love what you said there. Um, it's it's really powerful. And I, I, I want to reframe the Vic because I agree with what both of you said. I think it's really powerful. So the way that I think about this is not so much not seeing yourself as a victim because, again, some people either have been victimized or are victims, but not seeing yourself as a passive person with no control because like sometimes living with a disability or living with trauma i'm going to use a weird metaphor here but it can almost feel like you're an extra in a movie in your own movie like you're you are like on the sidelines you're watching the movie happen around you but you don't feel like you're the active protagonist driving the thing forward even good in metaphor and, and so I, so when I think about this, it's, it's actually seeing yourself as an active participant in your reality and not a passive participant in the things that happen to you. That doesn't mean that you aren't a victim in certain, certain circumstances or that you haven't been victimized, but that you actually have an active role to play and yeah. you're not just the extra in your own story. No, you're the hero. Mm -hmm. The, the problems, the challenges that you have are the, um, are the words, um, are the, you, sorry. Uh, the perception, the idea. Yeah, the, the challenges that you have are the hurdles and the conflicts, the conflict in the movie that drives the story forward. But you're the hero, you're not the extra. Um, that's, that, I think that would be a good way to complete that analogy. Um, yeah, and, um, and I do think that people that have disabilities can see themselves as a victim and say, woe is me, as opposed to finding strength within themselves to, to make the best of it. In my world, uh, I always try and warn people away 
from looking at themselves as broken more than a victim. But like, especially when you're a kid and you get diagnosed like with Tourette's and you get diagnosed with Tourette's and OCD and all these other things, and then they start labeling each one of the ticks that you have and giving it a different name, it can be so overwhelming to find out that you have an incurable neurological disease that you're going to have for the rest of your life. And here's all these 75 different names of things that go along with it. It's hard not to look at yourself and say, well, damn, I'm broken. This, I don't work. And I, I always try and advise parents when, I, when they're willing, like, okay, we may have all of these things, but let's just lump it under one term. Like it's it's Tourette's or what, whatever is the hardest thing that we're dealing with. Some of us, it's the OCD or the autism that's the harder thing to have to deal with. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was like, let's just talk about that thing. And all of this is just the flavor of this that we have. And, and this is not who you are. This isn't the definition of you. This isn't the only thing mm-hmm. that makes you who you are. It's just one of the ingredients that goes into making you who you are. And you know, that person isn't broken. That person just works a little different than the next person may. And yeah, I might yell out a lot of stuff and it might be hard to walk sometimes and I might shake and jerk and whatnot, but I'm also like super creative. And I've, I have worked on, I just completed like my 67th comic book I've worked on in the last five years. And I work faster than anybody else I know out there. And I do it because my brain works this way. What did you name this one? The most recent one that I just started is The Mighty Call of the Crow Magnet. And it's a bird barbarian from beyond the stars. And it's just fun, beat up the monster, save the buxom princess kind of stuff. You know, not overly complicated. It's just. So is that that a follow up to the one you did previously, Call? No, Green Zone is an entirely different series. It's all like political and drama and, you know, complicated and stuff. And this one is like kind of R rated Saturday morning cartoons fun, you know, Mm -hmm. like. It's yeah. very brutal, but it's it's fun. The mm-hmm. other one is is complex and deals with social issues and you know classism yeah. and stuff. So, but, um, if I can, <laughs> yeah. go off for a minute. Um, so, the I forgot his name. Uh, the green man that you that deals with disability comics. What is his name that you had on our? Journey's podcast a long time ago. <laughs> um, you mean you mean fish? Yes. The green. Yeah. What what about him? What's his name? What was was that fish? Who? I mean, I don't know. Who? I don't, who was I that? don't know anyone. <laughs> or one of my characters. What? <laughs> Not you. The character. Well, uh, my oh, very God, first comic book that I self-published was uh, T-Man and Hyperstrike. It's too far away for me to grab it. Um, and it was about uh, one of the characters is T-Man, who is like the living embodiment of Tourette syndrome. And it was purely designed to encourage kids with Tourette's because I was meeting far too many adults that were convinced they were broken and they can't be fixed. And like I met a kid that was 19 one time. And he was 
he was already living in the projects and government housing and he was on food stamps because you know and he was on disability because he could never get a job and he'll never be able to get a driver's license or get married or have kids or have a life so there's no point in even going on his life is over at 19 because he sniffs a lot and a couple of times a month he might say a swear word out loud and i'm sitting here thrashing and jerking in my chair i'm like dude you could do anything, man. I know I could get you a job at a hundred different places that aren't going to care how much you cuss in the back. Like everybody in the back of the shop is cussing. Nobody cares. <laughs> but somebody got into his head. In this case, it was his dad when he was little. And when he got diagnosed, his dad's like, well, you're broken. And there's no point in trying because I'm broken. And there's no point in finishing school or doing anything else because I'm broken. And I was like, man, you've got so much going on for you. You're strong. You're handsome. You can do whatever you want to do. And no, I'm broken. I can't do that. And that yeah. mindset was so cemented. I was like, right. I don't know how to fix this in adults. But I was like, if I could put something out there to encourage the kids before the world beats them down so much to be like, yeah, okay, we might be different. We might be a little weird. But you're going to be super creative. You're going to have fast reflexes. You're going to make great actors and scientists and athletes and all kinds of cool stuff. And, yeah, we're going to tick and jerk a lot, but that's just our body burning off all the extra awesomeness. Like, you know, don't focus on that. Focus on how awesome you are. And the letters I got back from kids just killed me, just broke me. I would just be weeping in the car reading some of these letters from kids around the world. And... You know, it was purely designed to encourage them, and I'm grateful for it. My only problem is, after I published that, I got so busy doing everybody else's books, I couldn't go back to do one of my own until just Aww. recently. Aww. But I also got to where I could pay my bills drawing comic books, which, mm -hmm. you know, felt great after, you know, spending 15 years right. either in bed or in my wheelchair. Right. So I'm grateful. I think all of those, you know, those terms victim like you said broken and also you know a lot of people the older generations like to use the terminology that if you're disabled you're suffering with something yeah she's suffering with whatever you know stop that we're yeah not, i would i would we're jump not always in. suffering I feel really wrong about what I said. And then I'm, I'm telling you guys now, I, I do have to go for an 11, a four o'clock appointment. But look, the disabilities are not the conflict that the hero has to overcome. It's just part of the hero, right? Mm -hmm. It's all the other things in the outside world that the hero has to overcome. I was right. wrong to say that. I was wrong. And um, yeah. Yeah, the disabilities are not the conflict. It's just part of the hero. The hero's journey and how they navigate the outside world, those conflicts, that's the journey. That's yeah. it. Thank you guys so much. This is yeah. Thank really you. That was, a, that was an excellent thing to say to him. Yeah, I was wrong. <laughs> I was wrong. And I wanted yeah. to make sure it's clear. It's just so great. It's, Thanks, everyone. I have to go for an appointment, but thank you yeah. so much, everybody. <laughs> Bye. Okay. Thank you guys. Right. I look forward to rewatching this. Take care. You guys have been amazing. Thanks. Thank you so much. I see you. ya. See you. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye. That that was um yeah, that was a great uh 
it's got to be really hard for kids, especially because, you know, you, you walk into a doctor's office with your parents. Um, you've grown up to be seven, eight, nine, whatever it is, and you're all like, not necessarily directly, but your parents have been filling your head with the doctor knows best and mm -hmm. your parents know best. And then you come out of the doctor's office, the doctor tells you you'll never be able to do this, 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 and this. And we're your parents, and we know better than you, and we're telling you you're broken. You know, that's mm -hmm. got to be really tough. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's so much awesome out there in life. There's so much good yeah. out there. I've got so many amazing yeah. friends. I've got a wonderful sure. wife. I've got amazing kids and grandkids. For anybody to tell me that I couldn't have this stuff, that's ridiculous. I absolutely have all this stuff. It's amazing. I might have to do some things differently. Like I had to go from working traditionally with my art to working digitally so that I could kind of, you know, help offset some of my trimmer. Uh, but I can still work. Like I can't do that carpentry and climb ladders and do all the other stuff I used to do. But I found a way to make a living that I enjoy and that I'm good mm -hmm. at. And man, my life is great. I got to do a few things differently to make it work, but that's all right. I'd mm -hmm. rather do that than sit around, you know, just moping about how bad my life is. And I got too much good stuff to do. Somebody else can mope for me. <laughs> <laughs> are, are you guys ready or did you have anything to say, Court? Mark? Um, yeah, we can go You're to ready. the next one. Yep. Um, so uh, we wanted to talk about committing all as to all aspects of your life after positively internalizing the roadblocks that exist. We we touched on this a little yeah, bit, we, but it's, yeah, we did. Um, is there any added? stuff you guys want to add no i would just say again um because i also have to go here soon but um i just would say that i think this has been a great discussion for thanks so thanks for having it one but Thank two you. you know whatever your life is going through whatever you're experiencing right and because one of the things and we didn't talk about this, but one of the things that can happen is like we compare sort of our experiences to other people's and we actually will downplay ours be like, well, it's not as bad as this person. So I don't really feel like I should feel this way. We almost invalidate our own feelings or people will do that because they're like miser almost like misery compare comparison or misery shopping. Like, well, it's not as mm. bad as this. And 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 what I would say is one have empathy for anyone around you because you never know what battles they are or not fighting and then two whatever your life is experiencing whatever it is it can be better and this gets back to the impermanence thing and like it can start by saying okay i can't do x or i can't do y but what small thing can i do small victories right mm -hmm. small victories like, how can I do something small? And I, I, I feel the same way as was just said. Like, I'm, I have an amazing wife, an amazing daughter. 
Um, just an amazing job, an amazing family and friends. And I feel very blessed. Um, and like many people, that doesn't mean my life is perfect or there aren't hard times, but just knowing that your life can get better than it is and it doesn't have to remain as bad as you think it is. Because the truth about life is it's never as good or as bad as you think it is. It's never as bad as it is. The other flip side of that is it's never as good as you think it is either, right? Like it's never as good or as bad as you think it is, right? It's kind of like one of the, the things you have to learn when you grow up. Like you think people talk about you all the time and then you realize like, no, they really don't. When you're not around, it's not that they don't like or love you, but when you're around, it's not like people are like, ah, I wonder what court's doing today. Like no one cares. And I don't mean that in a bad way. Like it's just, just like, but you have this notion when you're like a teenager, like, oh, people must really be talking about it. Because, and like the truth is like, you know, stuff like that, it's never as important or unimportant as we make it out to be, right? And just kind of remembering that, that it's never as bad or as good. Because that's the other thing is you really, I wish that it was back before, you know, I had this diagnosis or before I had this thing happen and everything was perfect. Well, chances are everything wasn't perfect back then either. And there were other challenges either. So it's never as good or as bad as you think it is. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. We have this, well, I mean, if we allow it, we have this uh, tendency to make ourselves the center of the universe. Like there was, I don't know how true this is, but a long time ago, people used to, Maybe think that the sun revolves around the earth, you know? Mm -hmm. So if we let it get out of hand, it can really get out of hand. So it's good to good that you brought that up, Court, and it's useful for us to keep some perspective. Absolutely. It's a very freeing concept to get a hold of because, you know, not only is the whole world not you know, conspiring together to make my life miserable and make my life hard. But, you know, it, that takes some of the pressure off. You know, it's it's not that bad. It's not as amazing as we might hope it is. Like, and, you know, people aren't just talking about how amazing my comic books are all day long. But, and, you know, I got some fans that like them. <laughs> and then you can take thinking that freeing yourself from that sort of thinking allows you to maybe think about, well, I used to think everything good or bad was happening to me and then realize that other people are coming into your world with that same perception about themselves. Mm. <laughs> and then it just adds a whole bunch of different dynamics to the situation absolutely a, th a thousand percent you know and it 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 reminds me i've been reading i like murder mysteries sorry i'm, I'm talking about weird things today but um <laughs> but there's this there's this series of murder mysteries i like that is that it that has sort of uh native american uh, mythology in some of it and there's a character that is this Ojibwe character, um, that is an Anishinaabe character who's explaining to um, someone, he's a he's a healer, an Indian healer called Omide. And uh, in the book, he says, um, you know, we have two wolves inside us. 
that are always fighting fear and love. And the character says, well, which one wins? And he says, always the one that you feed. Always the one that you feed. And I really, really like that concept of that there's these two things that are battling inside of you that have to do with how you can respond to all sorts of things, fear and love, right? And which one is going to be the one that takes over? The one that you feed, right? Because sometimes fear is a, a needed emotion and you need to feed it. If you're in danger, you need to feed fear at that moment to get you out of danger. But then right. other times we have fear that become paralyzing and we don't, we don't spend enough time thinking about how do we feed ourselves with um, with how do we feed ourselves with love to be to be connected to the greater mystery of nature right like um it's just something to think about that's that's where the meditation is so important right it uh, takes you out of that fight or flight sort of survivalist mentality mm -hmm. i think when you've been told don't feel this and don't feel that and you have that fear or that that you know internally you your experience of how you feel about that being said or that being done is real it's valid um and it's not something to ignore if you feel that fear you mm -hmm. know it's important to acknowledge it and other people to acknowledge it. Well, and it's just it's just like the comment, the, the point there says, like, there are real roadblocks. There are real things in our lives mm -hmm. that are hard. There's things that I can't do sometimes. Like, most of the time now, I can walk around with my cane and not have to be in a wheelchair every day now. Mm -hmm. But, like... I still have to take the ramp at the restaurant to get in because I can't lift my feet well enough to get up the stairs without a whole lot of trouble and potentially falling. So like I could refuse to do that and say, no, I don't need, I, I can walk and fall and get hurt. Or I could take the ramp and take longer, but get up there safely. Like there's some things I just have to deal with, but you know, I'm not going to beat myself up about it. I'm not going to say, I'm not going to let myself, make that negative narration in my mind that, you know, I'm broken. I'm not good enough. I'm not man enough because I can't get up the stairs without falling. You know, no, I'm going to make an adjustment to deal with the life that I have. And I'm going to do that. You know, I, I found a job where I don't have to be able to speak every day because I do all my communication over messenger and you know, I don't have to be able to walk every day because I do most of my work in my recliner. And, you know, I've figured out ways to make that work. And it, there's nothing within reason that we can't do if we just figure out ways to work with what we got and accept the things that we can't do. Like, I love kayaking. I can't do it anymore because my body's too unstable and, you know... I, muscles don't work right to control the canoe and keep me yeah. from drowning you know i can't physically do it anymore i miss it but that's okay there's other stuff i can do 
And then we'll focus on that. Yeah. You just have to, you know, remember who we are and what abilities that we have and know that our abilities, you know, even though they might have been negatively looked down on or whatever, we have to, uh, you know, be able to have our own experiences and figure out how to adapt that. So we appreciate you guys for being with us. We know you need to go court for your appointment. Yep. Thank you so much, guys. It was a great conversation. Thank you, guys. Happy to help. Guys. Have a good having. evening. And thank you to everyone for joining us. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I thought you were done. Go ahead. Well, hey, it won't go. It won't go. Oh. Okay. Okay. Oh, I was, I was just telling everyone thank you for joining us, and I hope they got. We hope they got a lot out of that discussion, yeah. and it can help them them moving forward. Yeah. That Bye, was everyone. a very. That was a very insightful a lot of good comments and a lot of good topics that we discussed and dealt with and I hope it helped uh, some yeah. people. It was really good. So uh, do you want to throw up our infographics so people yeah. can see when we're on yeah. next? And we'll see you next time. I don't know what's going on. It's taking its time because it says I don't know. There we go. Okay. Oh, it's. Huh. Hmm. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I'll, I'll have to uh, fix that next time. Um, okay. <laughs> do you want me to just uh, end the broadcast now? Yeah, yeah. <laughs>